welcome back to Parte Dos of our series on how to raise money for your projects. The first part of this little series, we talked about what not to do, a few of the dangers and pitfalls. So you can listen to this on its own, but I do recommend that if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and listen to it as I'm trying to set up a foundation of what not to do, what to steer clear of. And today we're going to be hitting on some of the best practices. One announcement before we get started today, I'm going to be giving away 10 copies of a back of the envelope pro forma that I have built and refined over the last 10 years. And I think it's appropriate time to do that because this series, we're obviously talking about how to raise money for your projects. So a big part of that is the financial analysis behind it. So I'm really proud of this little document that I've built. It has helped me tremendously. It's just a really simple little document that I use every single time before I evaluate any sort of spec deal. And it takes me about five minutes to fill it out because it's just a really simple little tool. And for anybody who could benefit from that, here's the deal. Write us a review on iTunes and then direct message me on Facebook or Instagram, letting me know that you've done that. Our handle on both of those is just uh, at Building Optimal. So send us that message. Let us know that you've done that. The first 10 people I'm going to give this back of the envelope pro forma away to. After that, I am going to have it available because it's something that I want to share with the builder community, but we will be selling it after that. So to roll this out and in conjunction with this series, I'm giving it away to the first 10 people. If you're interested, write us a review on iTunes and then direct message me on Facebook or Instagram and it's yours. All right, so let's jump into this. Last time we talked about what not to do. Today, we're going to talk about what to do, the best practices, or at least the best practices as I see them and as I have witnessed them over the 12 years, I think, in this business. First of all, let's set the stage. So there are two components to financing a project, and I realize a lot of you know it, but we got to create a common language before we embark down this path. So. Uh, two components to financing a project, and that is equity and that is debt. Equity and debt are the two ways to do it. Now, there are myriad derivatives of those. Yes, I do realize that. But at its core, at its essence, debt and equity are the two ways to finance a project. Now, a lot of people say they throw around the term cash. We're financing the project with cash. We bought the land with cash. I personally don't like that term. It seems flippant. So cash is equity. When somebody pays cash for a project or a portion of the project, that is equity. That is considered paid in equity. That can be considered book value equity. Now, yes, market value equity is something different, but for purposes of what we're discussing today, there are two ways to finance projects, debt and equity. So let's jump into it and talk about these different ideas and these different uh, combinations. I want to walk through, I think, a, 
I think the easiest way to approach this is going to be talking about it through uh, the different risk levels. So the easiest way, or perhaps not the easiest, but the safest way to finance a project is with 100% equity, i.e. 100% cash, if you want to call it that. That is the safest way because you have no debt and you don't have the dangers or the complications that can come with debt. But safest does not equal optimal. And after all, this is a show about building optimal. All right. So if we are trying to hit, at least for the bulk of builders, a more optimal structure, we do probably want to introduce some level of debt. And the question is how much? Because too much debt on a project is 2008 all over again. Too little debt on a project is not capturing the full benefits, the technical or theoretical benefits that leverage can have, which is leverage allows you to, well, do more projects. Where is that sweet spot? There's no right answer. Typically, what I have seen is that anywhere between 60 to 75% of a project's total cost could be represented by debt. And when we're talking about debt, I want to talk about bank loans. We talked about hard money last time. So when I'm talking about debt right now, I want to talk about senior debt via a bank loan. So 60 to 75%, which would then mean 25 to 40% of a total project's cost. And when I'm talking about total project's cost, so we're speaking the same language, I'm talking about land, talking about direct construction costs, anything that can be allocated to that project, finance costs, sales and marketing costs, all project costs should be rolled up into the project, by the way. And when we say that, 25 to 40% of those costs, typically from kind of in that, if we're targeting that sweet spot, would come from equity. To further simplify this a little bit, I personally, when I have done my projects and what I have found best for me, this does not mean this is best for other people. But what I have found best for me as a plain vanilla standard formula, I typically finance my projects 70% debt and 30% equity. And by the way, just so that we're on the same page, that 70% debt is represented as senior debt via bank loan, via local banks. We talked about this last time, but uh, local banks are typically the way to go. I have found uh, they're going to provide the best terms. Usually they're going to be the most flexible and easy to work with. And uh, they're going to provide some of the cheapest financing. Uh, Of course, you need to shop because there will be some discrepancy between them. But that is what I typically find. Local banks are the best. And I typically approach them for 70% of a total project's cost. By the way, when we're talking about total project cost, I do want to mention something that not everybody does. And I can't figure out why. But... Your projected interest expense on a project, you always, when you're building pro forma in the beginning, you need to project the projected interest expense, projected taxes and holding costs and all that kind of stuff. All of that needs to be built into your pro forma, an interest reserve and a tax reserve. 
and that needs to be included in the budget that you present to the bank. And those costs should be accounted for at the same rate, 70% by the bank, 30% by the equity in the project, wherever that equity is coming from. We'll get to that. So I sometimes see people leave that out and they pay for They just simply pay for the uh, interest on a month to month basis as the project goes, writing checks out of their bank account or whatever and leave it unaccounted for. And I find that as a really haphazard way to go about it. And that's one of the ways that a lot of hard money lenders do it. Not all, but I have seen that. And again, it's just something that I see as a risk that's easily avoided. So a little side rant about making sure you include interest and taxes in your project budget that you present to the bank and you present to your equity partners if you have them, uh, if you're not doing it yourself. So with that said, let's talk about equity. Again, at my 70%, that example, that would leave 30% of the project that needs to get funded by equity. So the question is, where can that equity come from? It can come from you personally, from yourself. Of course, that's probably in some regards the easiest when you're not having to deal with outside investors. There are a lot of real estate gurus out there that are talking about uh, using other people's money. And there's like even a little acronym for whatever other people's money, or I, I forget what it is. And there's some truth to it, but I think that they take it way too far because in my uh, not so humble opinion, I think the best is yourself. If you've got the money and you've got the capacity to do it yourself, uh, why not? And people say, well, you don't want to overcommit. You're already investing so much. Use other people's money. Why put your your own money in it? But again, my thought is if you believe in yourself and you believe in your business, then you probably, if this is a real estate project, going to return yields higher than the stock market. I know personally, if I had invested in my own projects over the last 10 years early. Well, I did, but if I could have done all of it, if I could have personally financed them, I think I would be retired by now. So maybe that's the basis for this little rant, but you need to think about it. And obviously there are a lot of factors. I realize I may be oversimplifying this. Your own pockets, your own equity, your own liquidity and assets is one way to finance the equity. The next way would be uh, other people's money. And last time we talked about how you're going to get assaulted in this business, metaphorically speaking, with people who come to you and say they've got a lot of money, they can raise money, and maybe they can, maybe they can't. What I have found through a lot of experience now is that the best source for money are family and friends. And I think a lot of people are worried about approaching family and friends. Let me throw personal network into there. They're worried about approaching approaching people like that, especially if you haven't before and you don't have much experience with it. And I completely get that. But w- what I have found is that uh, typically in, in our own experience and uh, and with the other builders I know in this, this business, your family and friends and your network want to support you. They want to, a lot of people don't know where to put their money in this market. And there are a lot of people you know that may have more money than you even know, and they don't know where to put it. And they don't know that you need or are looking for or could benefit from their money. So one of the best ways is family and friends. And and I know that might come off 
initially sounding as as a disappointment <laughs> because I don't necessarily have that perfect magical arrow with how to raise the equity, but we'll get to a few creative ideas here in a second. But I do want to mention something that when you're raising money from your family and friends, one strategy that has worked really well for me is to just send out a simple email. And I sent out a simple email because I personally don't like going to, especially my family and friends and personal at work and sitting people down and having that awkward conversation like, hey, do you want to invest? That can be a little a little off-putting, especially if, if the answer is no or they can or they don't want to or whatever. I don't like putting uh, my personal network in that type of position to have to tell me no. So what I have done is just sent out kind of a simple blast email, BCCing. Uh, our family and friends and personal network that I think might be interested. And I just say, hey, and just say something in that email like, hey, I want to <laughs> tell everybody uh, a little bit about what I'm doing right now so that you guys can know uh, what I'm doing and what I'm excited about doing. But I also want to just mention something to you all in case what I'm doing could benefit you in any way. I'm taking on these new projects. Um, here's my track record. Here are all the great things about my company. We are targeting these type of projects, which would have these type of returns. If you are interested, here's kind of our, our minimum investment. You can also drop to people, but very few people know that there's such a thing out there called a self-directed IRA, which means you can actually invest in real estate projects. There are a bunch of rules around it, so you have to talk to those self-directed IRA custodians, but that's a nifty little tool. So you can inform and educate your personal network on that, and you may get nothing from it, but the nice thing is you didn't put anybody individually on the spot, or there's a good chance you'll have a few people say, hey, listen, I want to learn more. Uh, because again, people don't know where to put their money right now. And if they trust you and you can show them that you have a great product and you have a good business, then there's a good chance that people who you never thought would be investing with you will. And again, it's oftentimes the people that you didn't think had the extra money to invest that will come forward. And if you educate people on that whole self-directed IRA, please advise anybody before they do that for they're using their retirement funds to invest in a risky real estate project to talk to their financial advisor and make sure that that risk profile fits with their goals and, and their capacities. But the self-directed IRA is a great thing to inform people about. We had a few new investors that came over to my old company through self-directed IRAs just simply after I educated them on that. So keep that in mind. And ideally what will happen is you'll start getting a few people who say, yeah, keep me posted on your next deal. And you'll build your database of potential investors before the deal arrives. And I personally like that so that you're not scrambling whenever the deal arrives. So anyway, that is my little spiel on how to raise money from family and friends, or at least how to start building a, a network of potential investors from there. Let's move on. So I've had the debate many, many a time about what's better. Sometimes you can go find that outside. If you are using outside investors and not your own money, you can find one person. So one deep pocketed person who can fund everything 
versus what I call syndicating a deal where you have several or even many. There are pros and cons to each. If you go with one person, they rightfully so may require a lot more handcuffs on you and want to influence the deal a lot more uh, than if you have a lot of small investors. The nice thing about one person is you only have to deal with one person and you don't have to deal with many. There's no right answer here, but they're just considerations. So the nuisance of having to deal with many versus the uh, possible complications and lack of control that you may have if you're only dealing with one. So that's just something that you're going to have to assess in your personal situation, because maybe you've got uh, one person who's completely hands off and that's probably the best. All right. Another consideration on equity is how do you structure the deal with your equity? How do you pay them? Again, there are uh, a plethora of ways to approach this. So I'm going to walk you through my standard and then a few others, and we'll kind of talk about some of the pros and cons. So when I structure a deal with my investors, I make sure that my company as the builder gets a management fee. And the management fee is designed to cover our overhead and really no more, no less on the project. It's just designed to make sure that we're not out there spending our money to create this project and floating those costs until the end of the project. So we get a management fee that typically is close to about 8% of the targeted sale price of the project. And you might wonder why we go off the sale price versus the cost. And you very well can go off the cost. Honestly, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just whatever metric you go off of, you want to try to approximate your, your true overhead in the project as best you can. Reason why I won't go off of 8% targeted sale prices because it's in line uh, more or less with the National Association of Home Builders uh, industry benchmarks in terms of where fixed overhead should, should generally come out. And my company operates more or less in line with that. So it's a good, it's a good metric and it's easily sellable to my investor because I explain, Hey, listen, we're not taking more or less. We're simply, simply trying to take what's consistent with industry benchmark. So if that's what I get to cover my fee, then the investor who's putting up the equity in the deal needs to get, in my opinion, something to cover their opportunity cost of their capital where it could go somewhere else. So this is what is often called as a preferred return. And I typically have my preferred return set at 8%. That preferred return is a simple, not compounded preferred return. And that preferred return is the first thing to get paid after all debt on the property or the project is paid. That 8% is, again, more or less designed to account for the cost of capital for that investor where they could go put it somewhere else during the course of the project. So the idea between the builder management fee and the investor preferred return is that everybody's costs, the builder and the, and the equity partner or the equity partners, everybody's costs are more or less covered. By the way, that preferred return accrues. So I say it's a simple preferred return. It accrues. It is not paid current. I think it's silly to pay preferred return current on a development project that isn't producing interim cash flows. It should accrue and it should be paid upon the sale of the property. Again, after bank debt is paid. 
So that preferred return is paid after bank debt. After that, we structure our deals so that the investor gets all of their capital back. So basically what happens is bank debt's paid first, preferred return is paid next in order of priority. The following order of priority would be capital repayment. And finally, what's left we call excess cash, and that would be split in whatever percentage you want. I typically split my my projects 50-50 with my investor, and you can do it in whatever way you want, though. 50-50, 60-40, 40-60, 70-30, whatever. So that's one of the beautiful things about structuring these deals. There's so many ways to go about it. I'm just trying to outline a baseline right now by referencing what I do so that we can all understand a very common way to approach it in the industry. So that's the way I do it. Let's talk about a few derivatives on this. So one derivative would be to only offer your investors a fixed preferred return or fixed percentage, as opposed to doing what I do, 8% pref plus half the profits. You could offer somebody just pref and nothing else. So 8% or 10% or 12% or 15%. My old company did, uh, did a lot of just straight preferred return deals at 15%. Here's basically the way that that plays out. So it's obviously simple to calculate. They just get simply 15% and then the builder gets what's remaining. So if a project outperforms and is in a great market, that uh, 15% is kind of a nice option that provides the upside to the builder. However, at that fixed rate, if something goes wrong, the project takes longer, the market starts declining, that 15% also represents a floor so that uh, it can represent more downside to the builder and that if a project underperforms and there's quite possibly nothing left over uh, after the investor gets their preferred return. So those fixed preferred returns I find are, are nice when you're extremely bullish on a project or on a market and you feel like there's a lot more upside. If you go the preferred return plus a profit share route, maybe you're reducing that hurdle. So you're reducing that hurdle that like we had from 15% down to eight. But then you're also, if a project just kills it, you're giving away more of the upside by, by splitting the profits. So it, there's no right answer. Like there's no right answer to really any of this. It all comes down to so many variables, but the straight preferred return is typically better in a great market. And, uh, uh, and for somebody who's extremely bullish, whereas I typically like to stick to, um, a, uh, profit split just as a way to provide a little bit more cushion and margin of safety. Cause at where I am, I, I, I more value margin of safety and cushion than I do unlimited upside. So, all right. One other of the, the many, many different combinations here would also be uh, hurdle rates and waterfalls to where you can do something to where the investor gets 70% of the cash flow up until they achieve a 10% IRR or preferred return. I know I'm introducing new variables here. If anybody gets confused, you can direct message me. We can talk about it. But some metrics, so 70% up until they hit a certain return level, and then it could flip. And then they could get 
after that level and the developer gets 70. So you can see there are so many different ways to structure it really depending on the risk profile of the deal, the risk tolerance of the investor, risk tolerance of the builder. It can always change. But I explained to you guys kind of the plain vanilla base case. So I like to use that and iterate off of, off of that depending on any number of factors. By the way, I want to talk about no matter how you structure the deal, here's my parting advice on how to set it up. So there is typically a market rate for what somebody would need to achieve to take on the risk to invest in your project. And I talked about this a little bit last time. It's going to depend on a lot of things. It's going to depend on your track record, your individual market, the risk of the project. So there's no right answer about what market rate is or what an investor needs to receive to invest in your project, it's going to be something you've got to figure out on your own. But that market rate, in my opinion, is that inflection point between where if you go lower, if they go, if they went lower, you would fail to incentivize investors to invest in your project. And if you go higher, you're simply giving away too much, leaving money on the table. So it's a ghost point that you'll never exactly know, but you can try to approximate. Figure out what that market rate is. Figure out what that rate is that you need to be offering to your investors. And then structure all of these different structuring scenarios that I'm outlining here. Adjust them so that they target that rate. In other words, if you know that your investor pool needs to generate about a 20% annualized return, maybe as measured by IRR, which is internal rate of return, if you know that they need to achieve that 20% annualized return to invest in your projects, and you've got the deal of the century, and you go and offer to them the 8% preferred return plus 50% of profits that I was telling you about, and that yields to them, I'm, th these are absurd numbers, I'm trying to prove a point. If that structure yields to them on this deal of the century, an 80% or 100% IRR, why would you do that? Change your structure, change your, your, your basis. Offer them an 8% preferred return plus 25% of the profits. At the end of the day, if 8% preferred return and 25% of the profits is what it's going to take to target that 20% return that you know they need, go that way. Don't leave more on the table is what I'm saying. And uh, adjust. Adjust your structures to always target a, a reasonable return for your investors. Okay, on to the next part. So what do you do if you're struggling to raise enough debt? One, uh, if you're struggling to raise enough debt, you may need to look to an outside loan guarantor. There are plenty of people out there, again, possibly in your personal network. That's probably the best place they would come from. Uh, you'll find a lot of people on LinkedIn who say they can do this or that or whatever. <laughs> um, and maybe some can, but uh, I would personally... If you're struggling to raise enough debt, look to your personal network to see if there's somebody who might be willing to offer a partial or, or a full loan guarantee alongside you to the bank to help get to your desired debt level. Again, for me, that desired debt level is 70%, but 
it may be a little different for, for you. Outside guarantors are a great way. They typically can be incented through some sort of points that you offer them on the amount of the loan they guarantee or percentage profits in the deal. Outside that, you can always look at adjusting, talking to your bank and adjusting to a lower leverage. Sometimes that's all it takes is just a little bit lower leverage point for the bank to get comfortable to do the deal. And also, if you're wanting to shed your personal guarantee, there's typically a leverage point at which banks will allow you to shed that, that your personal guarantee, which is not necessarily a bad goal at all. And finally, what to do if you're, raise, if you're struggling to raise enough debt for your project, you can go look for a, a mezzanine loan. Uh, which is more or less like a bridge loan between your uh, senior debt, your bank debt, and your equity. I want to point out that, that these MES loans are different from hard money. I guess they could be some hard money lenders will take a second lien position or a MES loan type position. Uh, again, I recommend staying away from them. And, uh, and oftentimes a MES loan will, come, will be just a junior piece of debt, meaning that it's subordinate to the bank loan. Uh, it can be secured or unsecured. Uh, it can come with personal guarantees or not. But uh, a MES loan um, will typically just come at a little higher rate than your senior debt, depending on how risky it is, how deep it goes into the into the capital stack, et cetera. Et cetera. That MES loan may be a great piece for somebody in your personal network that doesn't is a little more risk averse, doesn't want to take on equity positions in one of your projects, but likes the idea of being a little more secured, taking a little lower return in exchange for better security, a better risk profile. So think of, of mezzanine debt as an extension of your bank debt, just at a higher rate, several point premium on bank debt typically. And again, that premium will adjust depending on the risk profile. So those are a few ideas on how to maneuver if you're struggling raising your your bank debt. Oh, actually, I forgot something. Another option on your mezzanine debt besides family and friends might be seller financing. So sometimes the seller of a property will be open to leaving a portion of the sales price in as as uh, as debt and it will be willing to subordinate it to a bank loan. So one source of MES debt could be seller financing. Not always, but sometimes. It's just a nice card to keep in your back pocket as you're thinking about it. All right, what to do if you're struggling to raise enough equity? So we're talking about MES. MES can bridge that gap between debt and equity. So if you're struggling to raise enough equity, potentially you can plug part of that gap with a mezzanine loan. So mezzanine loan can help on either front, on the debt or equity side. Beyond that, I mentioned about how builders should be including all costs in their project budget. And we talked about how builders should get a management fee to cover their overhead. You can look at subordinating a portion of your, of your builder fee or your management fee. Subordinating isn't the right word. Let's say imputing or investing. Uh, a portion of your your builder management fee into the deal as equity. So say that you've got a deal and, and your uh, your budget shows a builder overhead fee of a hundred thousand. You could look at imputing whatever thirty thousand of that into the deal 
and hopefully your lender and your your other equity partners would value that as kind of peri pursu equity with the rest of uh, the rest of the equity in the deal and would count that towards it uh so you can impute a part of your fee you can also and this is a little bit more complicated but you can also look to if you're struggling to raise equity some of your your partners in the deal an architect or a realtor uh, who helped you buy the property or whatever you can approach them and see if they will impute a part of their fee into the deal as equity if they're doing that they should by the way they should get treated just as your other equity partners where whatever they impute is receiving that same preferred return and profit split etc for the risk to compensate for the risk that they they have agreed to take so those are a few uh, those are a few ideas on what to do if you're struggling to raise to raise equity i'll offer two other things that kind of will go hand in hand so if you've got a great project and you're struggling to raise money for it you can always try to pre-sell the project and it's, it can get kind of hairy kind of complicated but uh, if you pre-sell a project that can change completely change the risk profile for the bank and for the equity and depending on what sort of uh, deposit you get from the buyer that deposit can also be used as cash for you to uh, invest as equity in the project. I just caution you. One thing I see uh, so often is, is how builders use deposits for the wrong thing. Remember, whenever a client is giving you a deposit, that it is reflected on your balance sheet as a current liability. It is a liability until the day that you close and deliver on that. So for the sake of your client and the sake of your company, you need to make sure that if you ever didn't perform for whatever reason on your obligation or you had to give that deposit back for some sort of contractual reason, you need to make sure that you can still do it. So I offer that as an option, but it's a slippery slope. You just need to make sure you properly account for the liability that you have when somebody gives you a deposit. And the last thing that goes somewhat hand in hand with pre-selling a lot, uh, if you are really struggling to raise enough money to do a deal, you can always go try to partner with landowners to market, have your architect draw a concept and market that lot to buyers with their concept rendering for a certain price. And you can look for those buyers that can single-handedly buy the lot and then enter into a contract with you to build it so that you're then not having to raise any money. I realize that's a little outside the scope of what we're talking today, but I want to offer it just as another option. I have done that in my past and it's a lot of work, but it's fun and it's a creative way to secure new projects. Next time we'll talk about uh, logistics of raising this money some things for you to consider some legalities and a few other tidbits of of parting advice for the last episode in this series so until next time everybody have a good one and we'll talk soon <laughs>